Well, you came back. <laughs> Wasn't sure after last week's sermon, the longest and probably most controversial Kevin's done came in at over an hour. I kind of thought it just might be me and Carlos this morning. <laughs> Empty house, but I am glad to see that you are, are here. If you're new and just joining us, we are going through the book of First Timothy in a series titled House Rules, talking about what are God's rules for his house, for his church. And we will be today, starting in chapter 3, looking at church structure. How is a church to be led? What are the qualifications for the people that need to be leading the church? And before we dig into this text itself, I want to give a little bit of background about church offices and talk a little bit about that and what they are. And today, specifically, we're going to be talking about the role of elder slash pastor. The other church offices, deacons, we're going to hear about that next Sunday. But this Sunday, we're going to talk about the role of elder slash pastor. And if you look throughout Scripture, there are a number of different terms that the Scripture uses, but it all describes the same office. Here's some of the terms it used. In Hebrews 13, 17, it calls them leaders. In Ephesians 4, 11, it calls them pastors or shepherds. The word pastor that we use is, is actually the Latin word meaning shepherd. So pastor or shepherd. Um, you find that in Ephesians 4.11. Then here in our text today, you find the term bishop, or your, trans, or your translation say, may, may say bishop, mine, the NIV, says overseer. And this is the Greek word episkopos, where you get the Episcopalian denomination. And then the final term, and probably the most common term that you see employed throughout scripture, is the term elder, which is the Greek word presbyteros, where you get Presbyterian. And so while there's different names, leader, pastor, shepherd, bishop, overseer, elder, different terms, they all refer to the same office, that of the what I will call the pastor slash elder. And those people have four basic roles in the church. Their first role is to teach correct doctrine. The goal of the elders is to make sure that the church is learning correctly what the Bible teaches. If you look over at chapter 5, verse 17, you see about the elders who direct the affairs. And then it says, especially those works who, whose work is preaching and teaching. Titus 1, 9, Paul says that elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. And so the first role of an elder is to teach what the Bible says. Teach sound doctrine to the church. The second role of an elder is to protect the church from false teaching. If we are continuing the Titus passage, he says, so you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So know scripture in such a way that not only can you teach what's true, but you can refute what is not true. You can point out where it is not true. And in the book of Acts, Paul meets with the Ephesian elders, which is the same church that Timothy is at here. He meets with the Ephesian elders, and here's what he tells them. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And so the part of the role of an elder is to protect the church from outside influences, people outside the church that 
are teaching things that are not true, whether people are on TV, people that are on Spotify, people that are on YouTube, people with books and blogs. Part of the goal of an elder, their role is to protect the church from false teaching out there. But then Satan is a sneaky little guy. He doesn't just attack from out there. He attacks from inside as well. And in my experience in churches I've been in in the past, I've seen more damage done from the people inside the church who start teaching false doctrine than the people outside. And so Paul specifically says part of the role of elders is to make sure that inside the church there's no one that rises up that starts teaching false doctrine to pull people away from the truth. The role of an elder is to protect the church from false teaching. Teach what's true, protect the church from false teaching. The third role of an elder is to lead the church. Again, if you look over at chapter 5, verse 17, he says the elders who direct the affairs of the church. And so the, the role of the elder is to lead the church in the direction that the church should go on its mission. And then the final role of an elder is to care for the church, care for the sheep. They're called shepherds. We saw that in the book of Acts. It, they're called pastors in Ephesians 4. Again, the role of a shepherd is to care for the sheep. In a couple ways they do that, Paul specifically told the Ephesian elders to help those who are weak, help the weak. And so this means providing encouragement for those that need encouragement, providing counseling for those that need counseling, for those that are struggling financially to help them. Part of the goal of a pastor is to help the people in the church who are hurting, those who are sick, those who need help. And then another example of care would be James 5.14, where it says, those of you that are sick, go to the elders and ask them to pray for you. And so one of the, probably the highlights and the highest honor and privilege of being a pastor or an elder is getting the chance to pray for people in need, those that are sick, those that are going to have surgery, to pray that God will heal them. And so the role of an elder is to teach the correct doctrine, protect the church from false teaching both inside and outside the church, lead the church, and then care for the people in the church. And for those of you that are not aware, here at our church here at Faith Covenant Church, we have an elder board. It's typically referred to as council. So if you heard the term council, that is our elder board. And it's made up of three full-time pastors, which is Kevin, Alex, and myself. And then we have 12 lay elders that serve as well. And the difference is that the three paid pastors, we do this full-time and we collect our paycheck from the church so that we can spend the bulk of the time ministering to people, studying to teach, caring for the sheep, counseling, things like that. And then the 12 lay elders, they collect their paycheck from somewhere else, but then they serve the church in the same way in their free time as well. And so Paul says this is the role of elders to do these four things. This is what the Bible teaches. Elders are supposed to do these four things. And if you look at the text now in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, here's a trustworthy saying. So, hey, you can hang your hat on this one, as they would say. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So he says, number one, it's okay to aspire to be an elder. It's okay to say, I would love to be an elder one day. But he says those that do, they aspire to be a noble task, a very weighty and oftentimes difficult task. Because here are, are reasons why I think this is a noble task. Number one, it's not our church. As an elder, you're responsible for the church of God. 1 Peter 5.2 calls it God's flock. God's flock of sheep. This church here is not Kevin's church. It's not my church. It's not the council's church. This is 
God's church. This is Christ's church that he has entrusted to the elders to care for. Titus 1.7 calls elders managers or stewards of God's household. And so you are responsible for God's church. And then it, he says in Hebrews 13.17 that one day the elders will give an account for that church. They will give an account to God for how they led, how they taught, what they did. And so this is a great responsibility. And James 3.1 says, not many of you should become teachers because we know that teachers will incur greater judgments. So and not only do you have to give accountability for how you led, you have to give accountability for what you taught, whether it was true or false. And so if I could steal a phrase from Spider-Man and rewrite it, with great authority comes great responsibility and great accountability. As elders, there is the authority, but there's the responsibility, the accountability when we all die and stand before God. And then the final thing that we have to understand why this is a noble task is that if you were here with us for the book of Matthew, we learned that Jesus had an upside-down kingdom. You remember that? Jesus' kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world, and he talks about this in Matthew chapter 20. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he says, if you want to be great, you've got to be the servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be the slave. And Jesus' upside-down kingdom, those who are the leaders in authority, it is not a place of dominating dictating, domineering, putting people in their place. It is a place of love and service, what you would call servant leadership, leading through love, leading through serving. And so this is a noble task, knowing that you're responsible for God's church, knowing that you will be held accountable for what you do and for what you say, knowing that your role is to lead by serving, loving, caring for the people. And because this role is so important and so weighty, Paul is going to give us here in the rest of the passage, he's going to list out 15 different qualifications for elders. These are character traits that if you are going to be an elder, you need to have these 15 character traits. And if you're sitting here and saying, you know what, not an elder, I have no desire to be an elder, all right, you can go ahead and go home. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. You thought you were going to get out of a sermon after a long one last week. No, these are signs of spiritual maturity, all right? These qualifications of an elder is what a spiritually mature Christian should be. So whether you're a pastor or not, whether you desire to be a pastor or not, you should still listen to these to say, hey, do I have these markers of what it means to be a spiritually mature Christian? So I would encourage you to listen and as we go over these, to evaluate in your own life whether you measure up to what spiritual maturity is. So with that said, let's dig in. And before we dig in, let me just add this real fast, is that these are supposed to be character traits over the arc of someone's life, all right? Nobody's perfect. Everybody messes up. This is not saying, oh, you messed up one time. You're a terrible person. This is about saying, in general, as you look at their life, are they known to have these character qualities in their life? So the first character quality there in verse 2, now the overseer is to be above reproach. 
And above reproach here means cannot lay hold of. You cannot grasp onto him. And this isn't in the sense of the slippery politician that's like jello you can't nail to the wall. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is someone who lives their life in such a way that they're not easy to accuse of something. That the way they live their life is such a way that if someone comes to you and says, did you, you know what he did, blah, 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 that your first reaction is going to be, no way. I know that guy. He would never do that. And so above reproach doesn't mean that you're good, but you're above good and live your life in such a way that when someone accuses you of something falsely, it's hard to believe because your reputation is so impeccable. So an elder must be above reproach. Second, says an elder must be faithful to his wife. And this is the one that unfortunately we have to like grind to a halt and sit in for a minute because this is the one that's the most controversial. You got 15 of them, 14 of them most people agree with. This is the one that everyone gets bowed up about. And there are two issues here that are kind of controversial. The first issue is what does this mean as far as women in ministry? If it says a um, husband of one wife or faithful to his wife, the Greek word there, the Greek phrase is literally man of one woman, or you can translate it husband of one wife. The word for man and husband is the same in Greek, and the word for woman and wife is the same in Greek. So you can translate it either way. That's the literal translation, husband of one wife, the NIV translates it as faithful to his wife. So does this mean then that females cannot be elders? That's the first controversy. And the second controversy is what does this mean for divorced people? People have had different opinions over the centuries about what this means in regards to people who have been divorced and remarried. So let's look at both of those one at a time. And before we get into them, let me just say this, is when you get into doctrine, there are things that you call primary issues, all right? These are issues that we cannot disagree on and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Things like that Jesus is God. We cannot disagree on that and still call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. We cannot disagree that Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. If you disagree on that, we would say you are outside the faith. If you disagree that Jesus is God, you are outside the faith. And so these are things primary that we have to agree on. Then you have secondary issues, tertiary issues, and I don't know the word past there. <laughs> but we have all these layers of issues, theological issues. Secondary issues are issues that are important, but people can disagree on those and still both be believers in Christ. One example of that is baptism. The Baptists are going to baptize by immersion only. Presbyterians are going to do more sprinkling. They disagree on that issue as a very important issue, but I think we would all agree that both Baptists and Presbyterians are believers in Christ. They just disagree. And so when it comes to with women, with divorce, it is possible and it is true that there are people on both sides that love Jesus, that believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, that believe the gospel that will be in heaven. They disagree on this issue. That being said, when it comes to the issue of women in ministry, I think the way we start is we start with the Bible. We read through the Bible at face value to see what does it say and what does it teach. And if we do that, what we find is that in that day and age, it was a very patriarchal society. They did not allow women to be witnesses. Women were not allowed to learn. Women were really put down. But we find Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, which 
blew the mind of the disciples. We find that at the cross, it's the women that are faithful while the men go and hide. We find that it's the women who are the witnesses of Christ's resurrection. We find this, the women are very much pulled up in the Bible. And the Bible tells us that Jesus had a whole group of disciples, right? It wasn't just the 12. There were dozens of them, people, men and women, that followed Jesus around for his ministry. But when it came time to pick the 12 that were going to be the spiritual leadership of the early church, Jesus spent all night in prayer. Out of all these people, who should I pick? And he picked 12 men. And then we find that Judas falls away and Judas kills himself. And so in Acts 1, Peter stands up and says, we must replace Judas with somebody who has been with us from the start of Jesus' ministry, from his baptism all the way up until his death. We must, but then Peter says, we must pick a man out of all those followers. And so they put forward justice called Barsabbas. They put forward Matthias. And ultimately they pray and the Holy Spirit shows them Matthias as a choice. When we look at the examples of pastors and elders in the church, we find Timothy and Titus. We find it to be men. And the teaching on the scripture is Kevin spent an hour last week telling us about, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Paul ties that to creation, not to the lack of education, not to culture, not to the Ephesian church. He ties it to creation. And when he tackles this same subject in 1 Corinthians, he ties it. He says, this is because of what the law teaches. So anytime it's taught in the scripture, Paul teaches that the role of pastor elder is for man, and he ties it universally to creation or to the law. And so if we read through the Bible at face value, all the clear examples, all the clear teaching in scripture indicates that the role of pastor or elder is reserved for men only. And I think one of the things we have to think about, too, is what's not there. Because again, this was a very patriarchal society. Kevin talked about that last week, that the fact that Paul said, let the women learn, that would have been crazy to them to keep the women in the congregation to listen and learn. Women were excluded from that. That was men's stuff. Religion was the stuff of the men. And so they included the women in, and we find examples of women discipling, women hosting churches in their house, women being lifted up. But what we never find in there is a command, an example of women being pastors or elders. And so I think if you come at this from more of an egalitarian side, which Kevin defined these last week, egalitarian is that men and women are the same, roles are interchangeable. um, Complementarian is the idea that men and women are equal, but they are not the same and have different roles. If you are coming at this from the idea of the egalitarian, that women can and should be pastors and elders, one of the things you're going to have to wrestle with is why that is not clearly put in Scripture. The Bible is full of people being countercultural. Jesus, Paul, Peter, who again and again speak out against the culture, speak out against what's wrong, speak out about treating people right and correctly and equal. Why is the Bible so clear about human sexuality, but it doesn't talk about women being pastors? Why is it so clear on doctrine and false teaching? And Paul's even in the next chapter going to talk about false teachers that forbid people to marry and eating certain foods. Why is it so clear that they're going to teach this false doctrine, but then he doesn't say, and there's going to be these guys that won't let women be pastors. 
Why again and again is the Bible so clear, so countercultural, but never once says, make sure you let women be pastors? If you're going at this from a egalitarian perspective, again, that's something you're going to have to wrestle with. Why is the Bible so silent on that? Why are all the examples, all the teaching, the clear examples about this being something reserved for men? But you know what we do find when Paul talks to the men? He doesn't say, hey, make sure the women get in leadership with you. Paul gets on them about understand what it means to be a leader. He says, husbands, love your wives like you love yourselves, like you love your body. He said, no man ever hated himself. So guys, we know how much we love ourselves. He says, love your wife that much. And then he ups it even higher. He says, love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died on the cross for the church. And so Paul says, husbands, the way you love your wife is by sacrificing for her. Not doing what's best for you. Not thinking that, oh, I'm the head of the house. I get to do things my way. No, I'm the head of the house. I get to serve and love and do what's best for my wife. And again, with the elders, what does he say in 1 Peter 5? He says, serve not because you must, but because you are willing, not lording it over those entrusted to you. So he says as elders, as pastors, as men in the church, you don't lord it over people. You don't dominate people. You don't dictate to people. You love and you serve. So I think as we read scripture, based on what you see just reading through it, it's pretty clear that the role of pastor or elder is reserved for men. But a few other observations, thoughts about this that we need to talk about. Number one, under authority does not mean inferiority. Just because you are under authority does not mean you are inferior. Now, as Americans, we don't like this as much, right? Our culture is built on anti-authoritarianism, right? Somebody comes and says, pays taxes on the tea. What do we do? We throw it in the harbor. We wrote an entire document to start our country saying, nobody can tell me what to do, right? And then when that wasn't strong enough, we put all these amendments in place to make sure that nobody can tell us what to do. And so we, intrinsically in our culture, we do not like authority, and we think it's bad. But you know, there's this really fascinating story in the Bible. It's recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in Luke, that Jesus is in Capernaum, and he's out doing his ministry, and this Roman centurion comes up to him and says, Jesus, my son's dying, I need you to heal him. He says, but don't even come to my house. And then he makes this interesting statement. He says, I too, so I also am a man under authority. And I say to this soldier, go, and he goes. And I say to that soldier, come, and he comes. So I know you don't need to come to my house. You can just say the word, and my son will be healed. But you notice what he said? He didn't say, these soldiers obey me because I am a man who has all the authority. He did not say, I'm a man of authority. He said, I am a man under authority, just like you, Jesus. And you would expect at that point, Jesus would say, hey, now, buddy, I'm God. I have all the authority. And he would marvel that this guy was so stupid. But it says Jesus marveled. And then he says, I have not found such great faith 
in Israel. Jesus is amazed that this guy gets it. He gets that Jesus is under authority. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, this cup of death. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he submits to the will of the Father. And so if we're going to argue that being under authority, that being submissive means you are less than, then we have to argue that Jesus was less than the Father. And we know that he's not. Being under authority does not mean you are less than, of less value, of less worth. It's a difference in role. And I think for most of us in here, we have some roles in our life where we're the authority, whether it's at home with your kids, whether it's at your work, whether it's somewhere else, and we have other roles where we are under authority. Maybe it's at work. All of us, we live under laws and leaders. The under authority doesn't mean inferior. And my final question about this would just be, how many of you have had a boss, a supervisor, a politician in your life that you would say, I am definitely smarter than he or she? <laughs> I could do a better job in my sleep. All right? Just because you have the authority does not mean you are superior or better than those under you. Second thing we have to observe is that this only applies to home and the church. All right? God is talking about specifically in the home, the husband is supposed to be leader, specifically in the church, the men are supposed to be the elders and pastors. This is not some universal statement that covers everything. This is not, but there are some, there are some people, there's some famous pastors, I won't name their names here, but there's some famous pastors that have said things like, all women should live in submission to all men. So you're a woman, you're walking down the street, and the guy says, hey, pick up that pen. You got to say, oh, man, he's a man. I got to obey him, I guess. No, that's not what God's saying. That's not it. This is for the church and the home. And there's another pastor that he says things like women should not be police officers because you might have to tell a man what to do as a police officer. So you should not be in that role. All right, that is not what God is saying. God is saying for pastors, elders, that's the domain that he has set up for men to love and to lead and to serve. But for everything else, that is for women. And so women can be supervisors and bosses and CEOs and politicians and policemen and professors and teachers and all these positions of leadership except for pastor and elder. And that brings me to my, my third thing we need to remind her is we shouldn't focus on the can't. Because so many times we focus on this little thing, pastor, elder, and we neglect all this because we're so upset about this. When women can do so many things in the church, and in the world. And if you add the list here in 1 Timothy with the list in Titus, there's probably 20, 30 different qualifications of an elder. We don't want to get stuck on this one. Because I've been in churches with an elder board full of just men that meet the one qualification, but they don't meet the other 14. And it doesn't work well. We can't just focus on this. We've got to focus on this. Which brings me up to my fourth observation, fourth reminder for us. And this is primarily for those of us that would consider ourselves complementarians, something that we've got to wrestle with. We need to affirm and celebrate women in ministry because often we're so zealous about affirming what the Bible says that we neglect to affirm women and what they can do. We're so protective of saying, oh, we, get, we don't want to cross the line here that we start broadening out the box 
of what we don't think women should do rather than affirming and encouraging them. And I actually had a friend tell me once, he, he told me, he said, James, I don't think that women, not just that they can't preach, but they shouldn't be able to lead worship, they shouldn't be able to pray on Sunday mornings service, they shouldn't be able to read scripture in the service, even said, I'm not sure they should be greeters unless they have their husband there. And so we start, if we're not careful, broadening this out. But we need to not just affirm scripture, we need to affirm ladies and women in their ministry. And this is especially something we have to wrestle with when it comes to things like leadership and teaching, for women to have those gifts to make sure that we are affirming, encouraging, and celebrating that. Because let's just be honest. How many of you at some point in your life have been spiritually formed? You look more like Jesus today because of a lady in your life. Maybe it's a mom, maybe it's a grandmother, a Sunday school teacher, maybe it's a book you read, a podcast you listen to, some kind of teaching. Maybe it's the lady in your small group that said something one night that just, you're like, I get it now. Let's get crazy. Raise your hand. How many of you say I look more like Jesus because of a lady? And I think if we're honest, all of us have to raise our hands. As complementarians, we have to wrestle with getting better at affirming ladies. We need to affirm what scripture says. We need to affirm everyone and their roles, their gifts, and their talents. All right, breathe, right? (laughs) Let's go to controversial subject number two, divorce. So if it's a man of one woman, a husband of one wife, what does that mean? And throughout history, there's been a number of different ideas thrown out there. I'm going to list probably the top five most common that we see. Number one, it's the idea that someone has only ever been married once. So that means if you were married and your wife dies, and then you get married to another lady, that this means you cannot be an elder because you got married twice. And we look at that and say, really? That's a bit crazy. But believe it or not, in the second and the third century, that was probably one of the more common, if not the most common views, that that's what Paul was talking about. Because they so elevated Paul's teaching on the single life that they thought, hey, if you've been married and your wife died, you had your kids, you had your fun, yeah, you did the whole marriage thing, now you need to be devoted to Jesus. And if you're a guy that thinks, no, I need to be married again, you're not devoted to Jesus, you're worldly, you're self-serving, so you shouldn't be an elder. So that's the first one, someone who's only ever been married once. The second one is the idea of someone who's never been divorced and remarried. Yes, a wife could have died and they got remarried, but nowhere in them or their wife's history is there any kind of divorce. Divorce is kind of the scarlet A, Hester Prynne, scarlet letter. If you've ever read that, that once it happens, you're disqualified forever, whether it's your fault or not. Third view is that if you're divorced and remarried, but the divorce was biblical, and you've kind of gone back and made amends for anything you might have done, then you could serve as an elder. And so if you're wondering, well, what's the difference in a biblical divorce and a not biblical divorce, think of the three A's, all right? Biblical divorce is for one of three A's. Number one, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And so Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that if you're married and your spouse says, who is not a believer, says, I no longer want to be married, and they walk away, they abandon you, that at that point you are free to remarry. And I've seen this happen. I can think of two specific examples where two people got married. One of them said, you know what? I don't believe the Jesus thing anymore. I'm not a Christian. I'm gone. And they walked out. 
and left their spouse. Paul would say that spouse is free to remarry. We would call that a biblical divorce because the believer did not seek it out, did not try to do it on their own. They were the one that was abandoned. Second A is adultery. Jesus talks about this one. The divorce is wrong except in the case of adultery. So if you are the one that is cheated on, that your spouse goes out and commits adultery, they don't repent, they don't turn back. At that point, I think we can consider them not a believer because believers repent. And so in that sense, they have abandoned you. They have broken their marriage vow. In the case of adultery, if you are the one, not the one that cheated, but the one that got cheated on, then we would call that a biblical divorce. Third A would be the idea of abuse, that if you are in a marriage relationship where you are being abused, you need to separate. You need to get out. You need to take the kids and leave. Go somewhere safe. Call the authorities if it's warranted. But at some point, at some point, it may be that that abuser who won't repent, who won't change, that they have abandoned their marriage vows, and they might, then that could be a biblical divorce. So other than those three A's, we would say divorce is not biblical. That means um, I'm not happy anymore. I don't love him anymore. Irreconcilable differences. None of those are biblical reasons for divorce. The biblical reasons are abandonment, adultery, or abuse. Fourth view, simple, not a polygamist or promiscuous. A lot of people back then, they took multiple wives. And so he's saying, hey, you can't be someone with multiple wives. You have to be someone who has one wife, you're not promiscuous, you're not cheating on your wife, you're faithful to your wife and just one wife. And then the final one is just the idea that you have to be married. Can't be a single person, has to be someone that's married. These are kind of the five main views. So which one, which one aligns best with scripture? Well, I think if we look at number one, the idea that you've only ever been married once, while Paul does hold up the single life, he also talks over in chapter 5, we're going to see here in a few weeks, that he talks about younger widows, if your husband dies, go get married again. Paul is for remarriage if you were widowed. So the idea that you're only ever married once does not seem to be Paul's requirement here. And then the second option that divorce, even if you're the innocent party, is something like a scarlet A that you're banned for life. Well, I think the thing that you have to wrestle with with that is Again, Paul doesn't say not divorced. Greek has a word for divorce. Paul could have said he must be a man who has never been divorced, but he doesn't say that. He says a husband of one wife. And what Paul is looking here is the overall character of this person. Is this a guy that's going to be devoted to his wife, or is he a guy that when it gets tough, he's going to ditch his wife and run away? You want the guy in charge of the church who is a guy who is devoted to his wife in the good times and the bad, who is loving, serving, forgiving. And so I don't think that Paul is saying here, this is just someone who's never been divorced. If we were to skip ahead to number five, must be married. The Greek here, again, it can be translated a man of one woman. And so we can't positively assert that he's saying it has to be someone that's married as much as it is a character quality that you are someone that would be devoted to one woman for life. Number four, not a polygamist or promiscuous. I think that is an obvious one. You can't be a polygamist and be a good Christian or a smart person. <laughs> and you can't be promiscuous. So I think that leaves us with the third option. That Paul is saying here, hey, we want people of character who are devoted to their wives. Are there people that, yeah, maybe 
their first wife left them, abandoned them, cheated on them, ran away, and now they've since found a new wife and they're faithful to her. Sure, in those situations, I think Paul would say that person can be an elder. So when it comes to divorce, when it comes to a man of one woman, it's talking about four elders and pastors. It needs to be a man who has never been divorced because it was his choice, his fault. So let's move to number three. From here on, we're going to speed up and go pretty fast. And I don't want you to get the impression, though, that that's because these aren't as important. I don't want you to think we camped out on number two because, like, that's the one that we got to talk about. And the rest, yeah, they're, they're suggestions, good ideas. We're going to be moving faster now because these are less controversial. And so we don't have to cover 27 different views. We can go through these at a pretty good clip. All right. Elder must be temperate sober-minded, literally free from alcohol. This is someone well-balanced, in control of himself or his thoughts. So not someone that's drunk and doesn't know what he's thinking or saying. This is someone that's temperate and knows and is in control, which ties in with number four, self-controlled. Someone who is of a sound mind, sane, who can curb his desires and impulses. So this is someone who doesn't lose his temper, who is not rash, who is not impulsive, In Paul's list in Titus, he calls this disciplined. So this is a person who is temperate and self-controlled, not someone that's out of control, not someone that's impulsive, someone that's rash, someone that is full control of their faculties, their thoughts, their actions. Fifth, they must be respectable. This is a well-arranged, well-ordered life. Respectable is someone that you respect even if you disagree with them that by their character, by the way they carry themselves, the way they talk, they act, even if you disagree with them, you still respect them and what they believe and teach and say because they carry themselves in a way, such a way that they don't make you angry. They're not attacking. They're not rude. They're not unkind. Six says an elder must be hospitable. And I know for us, a lot of times we think This means for the guys, you throw out some chips and salsa, invite the guys over, and you watch the game, right? For women, you actually clean the house first, and then you make a nice dinner or something, and you have friends over for game night. All right, this is talking about that, but even more, because the Greek word hospitable is the Greek word philos, which means love, and xenos, which means stranger, foreigner, or immigrant. And so literally the word hospitable is a lover of strangers, a lover of foreigners, a lover of immigrants. This is not just someone that loves his friends. He loves people he doesn't know. He is welcoming to visitors in the church, welcoming to new people into his home, people that are like him, people that are not like him. The idea of hospitable is beyond just, I like hanging out with my friends and having them over. It's that I invite people that I don't know. I welcome everybody into my home. Seventh, able to teach We talked about this already, that one of the role of elders is teaching. I would just add here that when we talk about teaching, it does mean up front in the gathered assembly, preaching like we are doing here, but it can also mean teaching in a small group, teaching one-on-one. The idea here being that the elder has the knowledge of what the Bible says, what is correct doctrine. He is able to tell people what it says, whether in big settings, small settings, or individual settings. Number eight, not given to drunkenness. This is the idea that an elder cannot be someone who is addicted to alcohol. Someone who maybe is not even an alcoholic, but that guy that just has to have that drink every night to take the edge off. 
that needs that small buzz, that can't cope with life without turning to alcohol as a sort of crutch. This is someone who, like Ephesians 5.18 says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That he's able to rely on the Spirit, the Word of God, prayer, Christian friends. He doesn't have alcohol as a crutch. He's not given to drunkenness. He's not someone that you're going to find. He's not the town drunk. You don't want that person being an elder. Number nine, not violent. This means pugnacious, contentious, a bruiser. Titus called this quick-tempered. So he's not a guy that's going to be engaged in physical violence. But instead, Paul says he must be gentle, equitable, fair, or mild. So this is a guy, he's not a wimp. He has a spine of steel. He'll stand strong on the word of God, but he's not going to get his fist ready to fight over it. He's going to be gentle in the way he talks with you. Number 11 is not quarrelsome. This is not someone who is not to be withstood. Someone that cannot stand to be wrong. Someone that anytime a subject comes up, they're going to start arguing with you, quarreling with you. Titus calls this arrogant. An elder cannot be someone who is arrogant, who's always ready for a fight, whether physical or verbal. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.24 that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. So instead of being quarrelsome, you are kind. And he says over in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, that this is one of the marks of a false teacher who is always looking to quarrel with others. And so what you have here, when you put all these together, is this is a guy that you're not afraid to talk to. How many of you know someone like that? It's like, oh man, I got to talk to them every time. Here we go. Blah, blah, blah. Big fight, blows up. Man, I don't want to do that. Then an elder is a person who's gentle and kind, that even if you disagree on stuff, that you can sit down and have a conversation without him raising his voice, yelling at you, threatening at you, threatening you, that this is someone whose character is such that they can discuss things with you without feeling threatened or getting angry or upset. Number 12, not a lover of money. This is not someone that's covetous. Paul says this in 1 Timothy, over, look at chapter 6, verse 5, that some of these false teachers think that godliness is a means to financial gain, that if I'm just godly, God's going to bless me, the prosperity gospel, or think that I can exploit my position as a spiritual leader to take people's money. Think of the televangelist that wants you to give them all their money, all your money. They get rich off of you. This is not someone that sees the position as that a way to exploit others for their own gain. They're not a lover of money. Thirteen, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. All right, this is not meaning that they have perfect kids. I'm a pastor's kid. I broke the church window. I got kicked out of Sunday school. All right, <laughs> confession time. Doesn't mean that you can't have perfect kids, but it means that your kids are not the kids that the Sunday school workers are like, oh, man. They're here every week because they're the pastor's kids. Man, I hate it when those kids show up. No, that you have the well-behaved kids. And it says that he leads his family in a manner that is worthy of full respect. All right, it means that he has good kids because he loves them and he's kind to them and he disciplines them, not because he's so harsh and abusive that they're afraid. He leads his family. He raises his kids in a manner that is worthy of full respect, that you respect and look at him as a good father. And Paul's question then, it says, if you cannot manage your own house, how can you manage the church? So if you can't even train your kids in the ways of the Lord, 
How can you train a church in the ways of the Lord? If you can't help your family be all it can be for Christ, how can you help a church be all it can be for Christ? And so he says, it must be a person who raises his kids well. 14, must not be a recent convert. So this is not a new believer who's learning and growing quickly, and so you quickly see potential and you quickly bump them up and put them in a position of leadership before they are mature. Because he says, if you do that, he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The devil's problem was pride, that he thought he had it all, that he could be God, and he fell. And so if you take a new believer who is not matured and you start putting him up in position of leadership, the pride that I made it can cause him to fall. Because part of Christian maturity is what we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 1, that Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Part of Christian maturity is realizing how far you are from God. Have you noticed that? The more you get, think you're getting closer to God, the more you realize you're farther away than you thought. Part of Christian maturity is recognizing your faults, your flaws, that you need grace, forgiveness, and love. And so he says, don't put a recent convert who has not matured and grown in those areas into such a position where pride can get them and they will fall. And then finally, he says, an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And this is the idea here that non-Christians think positively of this guy. Doesn't, it's not because he goes along with culture. It's not because he doesn't take firm stands. But again, it's his character. It's the way he acts. It's the way he talks. It's the way he lives his life that people respect him even if they disagree with him. And I think a prime example of this is when my dad was in high school, he worked at a hardware store. And he wasn't that strong of a Christian, but he would try to invite his boss to church. And this was back in the days before credit cards where they just had like the little box with like note cards in there talking about people, how much they owed. You know, they had revolving accounts. And so that he would invite his, his boss to church and his boss would say, Bobby, come here. And he got out this little box of index cards. says, look at this lady right here. Goes to the Methodist church. She owes me money and I can't get her to pay. This guy right here goes to the Presbyterian church, owes me money months behind, and he's not paying me. He said, I am a better person than all of these Christians. Why should I become a Christian? And he was right. And so the idea of a man with a good reputation with outsiders means someone who does not have that reputation. Someone that others, non-Christians, look at and say, there is something about that guy. I may not like him, I may not disagree with him, but I cannot say that he's bad. Because Paul says, if not, you can fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What a disgraceful thing for the church if you have someone in authority that has a terrible reputation, the town drunk, the arguer, the fighter, you shouldn't have someone in authority that people in the world would say, seriously, you made him a leader? I wouldn't even let him be a leader of the condo association. And you're going to put him in charge of a church? Have a good reputation without ciders. So 15 qualifications, what it means to be an elder, what it looks like to be spiritually mature. And I'm going to close here with a little story. When it's probably been a dozen or so years ago. Timory and I got the opportunity to go on a mission trip to the little country of Malta. It's a series of three islands in the middle 
of the Mediterranean Sea. And we were going there because the mission board was bringing in all the missionaries from Europe. They were going to give them like a nice retreat, time to get away, conference, train, and pour into and help refresh these missionaries. And we were going, my church was going to provide the music. I play the piano. Timory was doing the back of house, the audio, video, all that stuff. And so we got the opportunity to go for a week and spend time with these missionaries. And I didn't realize this, but apparently a lot of the British people snowbird like they do in America, but they go down to Malta for the winter. And so we found at the hotel we were staying with, there was just dozens and dozens of British people who were on vacation or holiday, as they call it. And um, so I was in line, there was a buffet at the, at the hotel there, and I was getting my dinner, and this British, old British guy comes up to me and says, how's your confidence? And I'm like, is my fly down? <laughs> Do I got something on my face? <laughs> you know, your mind starts. And I was like, excuse me? He said, how's your confidence? And I'm like, good. I'm, I'm a confident guy, I guess. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I can't understand you. And he said, how is your confidence? And at this point, I'm just like, British people are weird. <laughs> you know, it's like, we don't do that in America. And so I go back to my table and I start telling my people, man, I met this weird British guy. And then somebody comes up, it's like, yeah, I met this guy. He was asking, how's your conference? And I was like, <laughs> stupid, stupid American. Can't understand the question. But I want to ask you, how is your confidence? When you look at these, this list of what spiritual maturity looks like, how confident are you that you can get 15 out of 15? Can you get seven, two, one? What is it? And so I want you to spend this time as we turn now to communion to begin thinking about where do I fall short? Because I think the cool thing about the Christian faith is that we serve a Savior who understands all of this. He was Jesus who knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. Servant leadership. He was Jesus who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours, who submitted to the will of his Father. And so the same Jesus that is on his knees washing his disciples' feet, a few hours later is on his knees praying, not my will, but yours. And so we have a Savior who understands what it's like. And so whatever your role is, you have a Savior who has modeled, exemplified, showed you in a perfect manner how to live.